the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. I'm going to start tonight with a question. Um, What's the first image you have when someone talks about life after death? What do you think glory will be like? What do you think heaven will be like? What do you think the popular feeling is that what heaven looks like? Because I think I know what most people think of. They think of clouds and wings and harps. And it's a sort of Christian background. It's a sort of Christian uh, theology there, but grossly distorted. And I, I no, this, this cartoon you can see on the screen um, gives the feeling that some people have that it's, we're going to sit there, Forever and ever and ever, and there's going to be nothing to do. It's going to be like Christmas Day with your family, but stretching on for eternity. And there's some truth in that. Not the negative parts, but the good parts. Um, Just having just had Christmas with my family, I say that there are good parts. And it's those good parts that what glory will be like. But to most people, heaven is this sort of almost joke thing that we are going to have wings, we're going to sit on a cloud, we're going to play a harp, and it's going to go on and on. And unfortunately, I think even in Christian circles, there's been a certain amount of that that we've seen in recent years, certainly in the last couple of decades, something called heavenly tourism, where... People have written accounts of when they said they've gone to heaven and have come back to life again. Interestingly enough, there have been some accounts where people have said they've gone to hell and come back. Now, not surprisingly, the books that sell the most are the ones that people have gone to heaven. The ones people have written accounts of going to hell, they don't sell very well, which has produced a whole industry of people um, talking about it. There's one called The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, which um, was about a young boy who who was... um, Serious accident, and he claimed he went to heaven and came back and gave a story about all that he had seen. Um, the, the, the sorrow about this is, is twofold. One, he very quickly said that he had made it up, but people didn't believe him because they were making money out of his story, out of the books, out of the films that were made. But the second sorrow is that Christians who know what glory is like, who know what God is like, didn't actually question it and Phil Johnson um, talking about it and interestingly enough the person who wrote the book called Malarkey I think the clue's in the name there isn't it well he, he Phil Johnson's talking about um, what he called the Burpo Malarkey doctrine he says the biblical authors are all fixated on God's glory which defines heaven and illuminates everything there they are overwhelmed chagrined petrified and put to silence by the sheer majesty of God's holiness Notably missing from all the biblical accounts are the frivolous features and juvenile attractions that seem to dominate every account of heaven currently on the bestsellers list. And so that's why I think it's so important for us as believers to have some sort of understanding of what the Lord says, what he's inspired by his Holy Spirit in his word. What does it mean when we die? What happens? And what are we like? What's the next step? When we step through that door onto the other side, what 
can we expect? And it's exactly what Paul is doing in this chapter, this whole chapter of 1 Corinthians. He's basically answering a question. If you look in verse 12, it says, um, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For some reason, some of the Corinthians are saying, there's no resurrection of the dead, that the dead do not rise. Now, there could, could be two reasons for that. One, maybe they're so taken up with the excitement and the overwhelming majesty of God that they think they've arrived. They don't need to be resurrected because they're living the resurrection life. And there's certain truth to that. They, they were living in, in the end times. We are living in the end times. We are already experienced something of the glory that will be revealed at the end. But I don't think that's probably it. I think it's much more that people said, no, this life is all there is. And a lot of the Jewish um, thinking was around that. The Greek thinking would be around that. This life is what you get. And Paul says, no. There is life beyond. And there is a resurrection. And he goes to talk about the importance of that resurrection. Paul in the resurrection to our salvation now. And the importance of that resurrection to our life now. It's not just something in the future. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. It's pie now. We can experience something of it now. So, we haven't got time to do the whole chapter, so I'm going to be doing bits of it. So, we'll probably focus most around those early verses, those first 20 and the last uh, 50 to 50, 58. So, what is the resurrection? What does it mean? Well, it quite simply is absolutely central to the gospel, to the good news of what God has for us. Paul says it's of first importance, verse 3. I, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. This is absolutely central to salvation and to who we are. The Corinthians, they knew that. They had been saved by this gospel. They had become Christians and they'd heard Paul preach and they'd heard this message and somehow they had lost it. And it's not just some new idea. It's not something that Paul's invented. It's a fulfillment of Scripture. This is God's plan all along. And it's the foundation that the Christians at Corinth were standing on. It's what they built on. It's a foundational truth that Christ rose again. Well, you must never forget that. Um, if you're of a slightly older generation you might have read this book called Who Moved the Stone. It's a bit out of fashion these days. But uh, Frank Morrison was, was um, somebody who set out to disprove the truth of the resurrection because he understood. He understood that this was central to what it meant to be a Christian. The trouble was, the more he looked at it, the more he read into it, the more he tried to understand what had happened, the more convinced he became. And eventually... He became a Christian, and he wrote this book, Who Moved the Stone? And that leads on to the second part. The resurrection is an historical event. It is something that happened. Apostle Paul says, look, it's an event that happened. People who are still alive today saw it. Over 500 people saw it. It's not something which is a philosophy or wise words or something that somebody's come up with. It's a real event that happened. Jesus Christ's body rose from the grave, 
was alive, was seen, was touched, was talked to. He was a living person. And it's an event that happened in history. And that's why if again, I'm, I'm maybe I because I'm getting a bit older, I've got a big birthday coming up very soon, and maybe I'm, I'm casting my mind back to when I was younger. If you were younger, you might have come across David Jenkins. David Jenkins was the uh, Bishop of Durham. I didn't believe in the virgin birth. Um, he did believe in the resurrection, but he got slightly misquoted, but he more or less referred to the resurrection as a conjuring trick with bones. And that's more to say, well, it's more than that. It's not just a conjuring trick with bones. But he didn't actually really believe in a physical resurrection. To my mind, anyone who can carry out a conjuring trick with bones like that is pretty impressive, and it's not something I would easily dismiss. But there's a certain dislike of the supernatural, certain dislike of... You know, you can talk about Christian things... But when you get to talking about somebody coming back from the dead, a body that was crucified and was buried and then was raised, that's a real challenge. That's something people can't just say, oh, nice for you, but it's not something which is really that important. If someone did do a conjuring trick with bones and came back from the dead, and that needs to be listened to. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, Jesus died and is alive. Not only that, he's alive now, because Paul met him. On that road to Damascus, Paul met with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because he's raised from the dead. Maybe not physically, we may not see him, but we can still meet him today. And we are inviting people in, not to a philosophy, not to those wise words, but we're inviting people in to meet with the living Saviour. He's died, he's raised, he's alive. So, that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. But what does it mean for us? Well, one of the fundamental things is it means a new body. If you flick your eyes down to verse 50... Paul says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. Sorry, that's verse 35. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps a wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. We will have a new body body. What sort of body will we have? Well, Paul goes on to explain, down to verse 50 this time. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul says, we will have a new body, but it will be a spiritual body. It will be um, a body which is, in some sense, Spiritual. Now, we have to be careful. That doesn't mean it's some sort of disembodied, ghostly presence. When Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks to the Corinthians, he says, you who are spiritual. And when he says you who are spiritual, he's talking to physical people, a congregation like this. He's talking to people who've got flesh and blood. So there's, there's something which is it's not 
some sort of invisible, ghostly presence. To be spiritual means to be, have the spirit within us, making us alive, living within us. Um, David Jackman, in his commentary on uh, this, this chapter, puts it like this. The natural body belongs to the world of material reality, time, space, and sense. It was created for life in that environment and is perfectly suited by the creator for that role. So there's nothing inferior or inadequate about it. But it is quite useless for the life of the world to come. That environment needs a spiritual body. And he goes on to say, God who is able to order every particle of his creation to accomplish his will is perfectly capable of producing a new body which has continuity of identity with his natural body, with the natural body of this world, but which is imperishable, glorious, powerful, and perfectly suited to the spiritual existence of the heavenly Jerusalem, the life of the world to come. So we'll have a spiritual body, but it will be also a physical body. It will be some sort of blending of the two. It will be a, a continuation of this physical life, but in a new way. And that's why Paul uses the word change um, so clearly. He says, if you just flip your eyes down to verse 51, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And that's why Paul uses the image of a seed. If you think of a seed, a seed's a small thing which doesn't look anything like the plant that it produces. And you can always have two seeds which look very similar and produce two completely different plants or vegetables. It's something very different. And that's true with us. Each one of us is a seed of some kind. And we will be planted in the ground when we die, unless he comes before we die. We will be planted in the ground, and then that last trumpet will sound, we will be raised, and we will be changed. But there will be a, continua a continu continuity between us and what was there before. A continuity of, of who we are, of our personality, of the people that God has made us. So we'll have this spiritual body, this physical body, and a body that is imperishable. Verse 50, verse 50. Imperishable. It will not perish. It will not wear out. And for those who, who maybe um, are conscious of their bodies wearing out, as you get older, you, your body does wear out. We, we have a limited time on this earth. And this body which we live within has a limited lifespan to it. It wears out. But we will have a new body. And what I can't tell you is what that body will be like. I don't know whether we'll be young or whether we'll be old, whether we'll look similar or whether we will be completely different. I think it's useful to look back at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and think, look at him. He was raised from the dead. And when he came back, he was a different but the same. He was different. People didn't recognize him. He seemed to be able to appear almost out of thin air. No, he was there in the room, in the midst of them. 
a number of times, people who knew him well didn't know who he was. And then sort of the veil was lifted, and they knew who he was. So this Jesus was the same, but different. We will be the same, but different. And I don't know what that will mean for us, but I know that it will be good because God has brought us into his presence and we will be with him. So this body which is wearing out, this body which is slowly falling apart, will become imperishable. And all those things which are failing and which will fail will never fail. Not only that, when I say never fail, it says it will be immortal. It will go on forever. And this is where, when the world looks at it and thinks, who wants a world that goes on forever? It will be glorious. Because we will become the people we are fully meant to be. Our bodies, this spiritual, physical blend will be with our Lord and we will be in exactly the right relationship in his presence knowing him fully as he fully knows us that will never get boring that will never be dull that will never be something we wish it will end we will just won't even understand what an end is it will be perfection it will be the world as it should be in relationship with our Father. What, what other things does Paul say? He says we have a new body and then he says we'll have victory over death. Verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. A fear of death is absolutely understandable and natural. Many people will claim not to uh, fear death, and some I don't think are bothered by it, but the vast majority of people, when that end is getting close, they begin to fear it. And that's right, because death is an intruder. Death is not as the world should be. Death is not as the way God has made it. Death came in through our wrongdoing, through our sin. Death is a bleak prospect. This is uh, Bertrand Russell, a philosopher, a secular philosopher, not a Christian. I should be clear for those who don't know him. And he describes it like this. There is darkness without. And when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor. No vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Why live in such a world? Why even die? And that's, I think the honesty is there. He looks and it's bleak. Without that hope which God brings to us, this promise of resurrection and new life, the world is bleak. There is darkness without, and when I die, there'll be darkness within. But that's not what the Lord promises. He promises that we will sleep, and that's, I think that's a great image of what death is like. It's like going to sleep. 
go to sleep. And when we wake, we will be raised and be with him. And that is what death is. Death is just a transition from one state to another. Someone described it like going through a door. It's a one-way door. I remember years ago, I was in a building. Uh, I, was, I was a visitor. I, I went through a door. It closed behind me. I realized I'd gone the wrong way. I mean, those are the days, security door. And there I was in another strange part of this building, completely unable to get back to where I was. Well, death's a bit like that. We go through. It's a new world. We can't go back. But it's just stepping through a door. And we have victory over death. Not because we're clever. Not because we're brave. Not because we're strong but because Jesus Christ has died and he has given us new life. We'll be remembering that very shortly in communion when we remember what Jesus has been through, what Jesus achieved, and he achieved victory over death. And I think it's something, if you've been a Christian any length of time, it's so easy just to, yes, victory over death. Victory over death over death through the centuries people have feared death have seen it as an end and we can say through the Lord Jesus Christ we have victory over death and very quickly I'm going to one last point what does it mean for today I'm going to read verse 58 the final verse of the chapter therefore my dear brothers and sisters stand firm let nothing move you, move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. He tells us to stand firm. Stand, we can stand firm. We know who our Father is. We know he's raised the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just one of those foundations we stand on. The trouble is we're standing on a foundation and all around us, People are trying to kick the bricks out of the foundation. And we look at them and think, oh, will this stand? Will this be strong? We can be absolutely confident. Maybe sometimes we just need to lift our eyes up and look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's all fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter. He's the one who's gone before us. He's the one who's brought us through to glory. And this foundation we stand on? Absolutely secure. So whatever the world throws at us, Whatever weeks go through, it's a firm foundation. So firm that death cannot overcome it. And then secondly, Paul talks about give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Uh, some people say that even if resurrection isn't true, even if God doesn't really exist, Following Christian principles is, is a good idea. It's a good thing to do. I, I am not convinced by that because, as Paul says, we are to be more pitied than any others. If it's not true, if, if what we read here that the Holy Spirit has inspired is not true, then why are we working? But it is true. And our labour is not in vain. Uh, in their study on uh, 1 Corinthians... Um, this commentary puts it like this. The first letter um, in, in, um, talks about Paul. 
He says, Paul's already established that all of life is in vain if there is no resurrection. As it is, our life and labour are not in vain, but have meaning, purpose, direction, and their proper final reward. The life of true wisdom, which rejects sexual immorality, greed, and idolatry, in favour of a life of integrity before the Lord, who is raised from the dead, and whose reign will consummate God's redemptive plan, is the only life with ultimate meaning, in that it reflects the continuity between God's renewed humanity, both before and after the resurrection. We are just living a life which is moving from where we are now to where we will be one day in glory. And it's just a continuation. There's a continuity. And our work is not in vain because we are working towards an ultimate uh, event when we will be raised and be with him. And then we'll be able to say, with uh, the prophet Isaiah, when he looked at these times from centuries before, he said, the Lord Almighty will destroy the shroud, that's the shroud of death, the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely, this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. In a moment, we're going to have communion, but I'm going to uh, pray first. And I want to uh, pray just to thank the Lord for what he's done for us. But I also want to pray for if anyone here is uh, fearful of death, concerned, not quite confident, I want you to pray as well. Pray that the Lord will reveal by his spirit that sure foundation that you, that you have, that I have, that we all have, that there is victory over death. Shall we pray? As Isaiah said, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Lord, we trust in you. You have saved us. And one day, we will be with you. We will be changed and we will be new people. And we want to thank you for that, for that salvation that we experience now and for that glorious resurrection that will come. And Lord, if anyone here tonight is nervous about the future, is fearful of what death may bring. Lord, I ask that your spirit will be working in them, that they may be able to say with Paul that there is victory over death, that through the cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is victory. Lord, may that be what's before us now, that we can see that and are able to stand firm and able to work with all our heart for your glory, for your name's sake.